0: Good morning, good morning. All right. Good morning, church family. Good morning. Uh, My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Like Brett said, I also want to say uh, happy Father's Day. Um, I said this around Mother's Day, and I think it's applicable here as well. Uh, Father's Day is a good opportunity for us in the church to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So for some of us, uh, Father's Day is a hard day. Um, You've lost your father. You're estranged from your father. You long to be a father, and you can't be. And if that's you, then we weep with you. Uh, We want to honor that. And we also want to celebrate our dads, the people in our lives who have raised us and and loved us and uh, grown us and shaped us. And regardless of, of where you're at on the emotional spectrum, all of us here have a Heavenly Father who runs to us like the father in the story of the prodigal son, and welcomes us in as we are, and then transforms us, gives us a robe and honor and dignity and love. So in that sense, happy Heavenly Father's Day to everybody here, amen? All right. Uh, we are in Acts 14 this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and, and start turning there. it will also be up on the screen later when I read the passage. But uh, let, me, let me pray for us as we open God's word. Father God, when we uh, open the app or open the page of your word, we're not simply opening another book, we're hearing from you. And so we expect to be changed and encouraged and challenged, and most of all, we expect to see Jesus in these pages. So, Jesus, would you be magnified and glorified here now? In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. My grandfather, Martin Solis, immigrated from Mexico when he was a teenager. Uh, I should have a picture of him up there. There's Martin. Uh, you can guess which one he is. Short, short little guy. Um, just a little Father's Day honoring there of, of Martin. So Martin Solis immigrated from Mexico when he was a teenager. And when he became an American citizen, he wanted nothing to do with his home country. Uh, he, In his mind, he equated Mexico with poverty and the United States with wealth, and so when he came over, he just abandoned everything from his home country. He, he didn't teach his kids Spanish, uh, he even pronounced his name differently, that's why I'm Mike Solis and not Miguel Solis. Um, But for many immigrant families, maybe if, if some of you have come from a different country, you know that keeping your first language is usually a very important part of your identity, and this leads to a phenomenon that sociologists call code switching. Have you ever heard that term? So code switching is when a speaker alternates between either two languages or two dialects or even two styles of speaking in conversations. Uh, For example, a native Spanish speaker might fluidly move from English to Spanish to back to English in a single conversation. And all of us code switch every day, even if we only know one language, because we all speak in a different way to different kinds of people. We just usually don't notice it. Uh, for example, how you speak to your boss is very different than how you speak to your kid. At least, I, I hope so, <laughs> if I said to cleo hi Kyle, how was your day? It would <laughs> get really weird really quickly. We speak differently to different people in different contexts. So when you're in a job interview, you speak one way. When you're talking to a stranger on the phone, you speak another way. When you're hanging out uh, around a bonfire with your friends, when you're at church, you speak a certain way. We adapt our communication styles and tones for those various settings. And ideally, we're not hiding who we are by code switching. We can still be authentically ourselves even as we use wisdom to know how we should speak in different situations. And this brings us to one of the core ideas in the book of Acts, and it's this concept of witness. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus' final sentence to his followers was this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth." Now, the word in Greek for witness is martous. Uh, It's used in both legal and non-legal settings to describe somebody who gives a testimony, an an eyewitness account. And later on in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, it describes somebody whose witness leads to their death. So you might notice the similarity between the later technical word martyr that comes from that word martous. Uh, I feel like the English word ambassador Kind of carries the, the meaning of witness. Uh, Jesus' words are a thesis statement from the whole book of Acts. They start in Jerusalem, then they go to the surrounding regions, and now they go to the ends of the earth. As we've been seeing, Paul go to uh, at least what in that day was approaching the ends of the earth. Uh, and the, in all of those places, the role of a disciple is to be an ambassador, to be a witness, to be one who bears testimony about the good news of Jesus. And salvation found in him. At Rock Hill, we summarize what it means to follow Jesus with six core identities. If you've been around for a while, these are probably familiar to you. So this, uh, this is from our member covenant, which all our members have agreed to. One of the six core identities that we've identified is witness. So here's what it says, Jesus has called me to share the good news in word and deed. This includes speaking about him, and demonstrating his love through acts of mercy as his kingdom ambassador in this fallen world. Therefore, I commit to watching my life and being a witness for Jesus wherever I go. Well, that sounds very good. On paper, I follow Jesus and I will share the good news with, to whomever I meet. But then, as soon as you get out into the real world, and you start meeting real people, it gets complicated really quickly. How should you be a witness to a coworker who grew up Lutheran, but now they're not following Jesus? Uh, How should you be a witness to your neighbor who's never set foot in a church building before? How should you be a witness to your family member who uh, follows a different religion? The what of witnessing is clear, but the how is very complex. What do I mean? The, the what, what do all people need to hear when we're a witness? The gospel, the gospel, that's clear. But how, how can we best declare the gospel to different people in different neighborhoods and different countries with different backgrounds and, and cultures? How do we code switch the gospel? Not switch the gospel, not change the gospel, but how do we translate the gospel? That's often difficult to discern. It's hard to learn how to be missional, how to remain faithful to the message of the gospel and yet speak in a timely way with the people who are listening to us. And in Acts 14, the passage that we're going to study today, we get to sit in on a master class of witness. It's, it's remarkable. We get to see Paul and Barnabas that, who are traveling through Asia Minor and they're encountering all different kinds of people along the way. And we get to see in each of those situations How do they be a witness? So, the main question of our passage today in Acts 14 is this. How do we bear witness in different contexts? We're going to see Paul and Barnabas traveled to different cities as witnesses in what I'm calling a familiar context, and I'll explain what I mean. Familiar context, an unfamiliar context, and then finally in a violent context. So, turn to Acts 14. We're starting in verse 1. Let's read together, first witnessing in a familiar context. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So in the city of Iconium, which is modern-day Konya in Turkey, Paul and Barnabas did what they normally do. They went into the Jewish synagogue, and they preached a message similar to the one that we saw in Acts 13 that looks at the Old Testament, and it shows how Jesus fulfills the promises to Abraham, Moses, and David And again, we see this pattern, Jews and Gentiles both believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah who brings forgiveness and eternal life because of his death and resurrection. We'll talk about verse 3 in more depth a little bit later, so we'll skip it for now. But we read here how some hear the bold witness, the clear testimony of God's grace. They see miraculous signs appear, and they say, I need Jesus. He is the Savior and Lord of all, and I want to follow him. And yet we also see some for whom that, of- that message is offensive, especially the Jews who saw Jesus as merely a man, not as God incarnate. Uh, they could not accept that God would submit himself to a shameful death on the cross. And so in verse 2, these unbelieving Jews stir up or incite the Gentiles, telling lies or half-truths against the apostles. Now this is curious because if you remember, in the law of Moses, Jews were not to associate in any way with Gentiles. You weren't even supposed to go into their house. You weren't supposed to eat with them. And yet, we see new dividing lines being formed in the world here because of the controversial claims of Jesus. Now, it's not Jew versus Gentile, but it's those who reject Jesus and those who follow Jesus. And some do believe it leads to this increasingly tense situation within the city. It gets so bad that just like in Pisidian Antioch, there's a threat of violence. I don't know about you, but I I sometimes picture the apostles Always standing up courageously against opposition, you know, saying, Come what may, I will preach the gospel even if you kill me, you know, kind of brave heart freedom, that kind of thing. Uh, That is sort of what happened to Stephen earlier in the book of Acts. And yet, here we see the apostles exercising wisdom by avoiding conflict. In verse 6, they learned of this threat. And fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So we learn that sometimes the Lord requires us to continue witnessing in the midst of danger and death. And at other times, the Lord tells us to bear witness elsewhere, out of harm's way. Either, Either way, wherever they are, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel. So it's not a question of fear or courage. It's, it's not having a plan always to run away from danger or a plan always to run toward danger. It's a commitment to go where God wants us to go, wherever that may be, to follow his will for our lives. Now, we don't hear details about what Paul or Barnabas said in Iconium, but the fact that they went to the synagogue first, like I said, indicates that they were probably prioritizing the Jewish audience, those who grew up reading and memorizing the Torah and following its commands. This is what I've called the familiar context, meaning a culture that has some background knowledge of the God of the Bible. If you go through Acts, if you look at the sermons in Acts 2, 7, 13, all of them are addressed to people who know the Old Testament well. In fact, they probably know the Old Testament way better than you do, because they're quoting Isaiah and the Psalms and Habakkuk left and right, and nobody is blinking an eye. They're following. Nobody is like, wait, who is Habakkuk? And I don't know. Uh, They are following his argument as they're going along. So, what the apostles are doing here is that they are code-switching the gospel. They're being witnesses to the good news in a way that their audience can understand. And this is instructive for us because there are many people in our own time who are not Christians, but who are very familiar with the Bible and with Christianity. Uh, Maybe people who went to Catholic school. Uh, Or people who grew up in the church and then they walked away from it. Or people who lived in a just very Christianized environment like the Bible Belt. Uh, They kind of know how this church thing works. People who grew up in a familiar context remember the basics of Jesus' life. They know a few Bible stories maybe. People in a familiar context don't believe in Jesus, but they know about him. Perhaps you know somebody like that in your life. Where if you started talking with them about the Bible, maybe not, you know, super in-depth, but they could somewhat follow along. If you mentioned Noah and the ark, they're like, all right, that's the story with the animals. I kind of remember that. It was Sunday school, that sort of, sort of thing. Now, if you want to learn evangelism 101, just starting at the basics, let me just give you a very simple gospel template. A basic principle of being a witness of the gospel in any context is that you're doing three things. First, you're telling people the bad news. Second, you're telling people the good news. And then finally, you are redefining ideas based on the good news and the bad news. Here's what I mean in any context, the bad news is that you are trying to save yourself, but you can't. In any context, the good news is that you can be saved through Jesus alone. But then the third essential step is to redefine or to contextualize. You thought that you understood X, Y, Z, but now because of the gospel, we can understand X, Y, Z differently. We explain the gospel in a way that is compelling and addresses the alternate narratives that people are believing. Here's how it works in Iconium. When when Paul and Barnabas are speaking to a Jewish uh, audience, here is what they say. You're trying to save yourself through the law, but you can't. You can never measure up to God's perfect standards. But the good news is that Jesus lived the perfect standard and offered up his life as the perfect sacrifice for you, satisfying the law and setting you free. And then here's where he redefines. He says, what's more, all of the Old Testament promises are fulfilled in him. What you know about the Torah is flipped upside down and it's recalibrated by Jesus, bad news, good news redefine. That makes sense? What about people today who are familiar with the Bible? So people in the 21st century who are in a familiar context, they grew up going to church, or they kind of know how this sort of thing works, but they don't follow Jesus. In many familiar contexts, especially in the United States, and especially in more traditional cultures, the dominant narrative is very similar to this. It's uh, that the meaning of life is to be good, People who are not Christian, but who grew up in a Christian environment, often believe that the meaning of life is to be good. Maybe you've heard this before, something along the lines of, well, you know, I went to church when I grew up, so I know I got to live a, you know, pretty decent life. I'm not perfect, but I'll, I'll live a pretty good life, and then hopefully the good will outweigh the bad, and God will accept me in the end. Have you heard that sort of language and people talking? Uh, They're still using the categories of God and good and bad and heaven and hell. So what does witness look like? How does the gospel code switch in that context? It looks like this. The bad news is that you know you should be good, but you can't be. Try as you hard, If you're really honest with yourself, you can't be good. At least not good enough. But the good news is that Jesus has taken the punishment that your moral failures deserve so that you can be permanently forgiven. And then what do we need to redefine? You have this idea that the meaning of life is to be good, yes, but let's redefine what does it mean to live a good life. It means to be in a relationship with God, a relationship that is based on his grace. You see how that works? You have the same gospel but you're emphasizing different things based on who you're talking about, about what their questions are, what the narratives in their mind are, what their beliefs are. This is the gospel applied to those who know about God, who have some background of the Bible. It's what Paul and Barnabas were doing to those in a familiar context in those days. But what about an unfamiliar context? Let's see a different kind of witness in the next story. Verse eight, witnessing in an unfamiliar context. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. In Lystra... Paul is apparently speaking out in public, not in a synagogue, perhaps because there wasn't a synagogue. It doesn't mention it. And a man who is crippled hears him, believes the gospel, and is miraculously healed. It's actually the same pattern that we saw in Iconium. Somebody preaches the gospel. People believe in Jesus. Miraculous things happen that dramatically changes lives. And then resistance comes. But the resistance here looks very different than what it looked like in Iconium, because this is not a Jewish context, but a Greek context. In the oral and written mythologies of the Greek pantheon, uh, one common indicator of the presence of the gods, how do you know that the gods are walking among you? It was an intense stare and that person speaking in a loud voice. So, this is probably why Luke, the author, mentions those things, that Paul unintentionally does those things when he's healing this man, and the citizens of Lystra uh, see it, and they come to the conclusion, wow, this guy is a god, amazing, I read about this, I heard about this, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. But there's some language confusion going on. They're speaking in their native language, so it appears that the apostles don't realize what's happening. It's actually kind of humorous at first because there's Paul kind of preaching and he heals a guy and it's amazing. Some people are believing in Jesus and then somebody's running to get the priest of Zeus and Paul doesn't really know what's going on because he just hears them talking in their native language and then all of a sudden there's a parade and bulls are coming out and somebody's putting a garland on Paul's head and he's like, what is going on? And the priest of Zeus is pointing and saying, let's make sacrifices to the gods here. It's kind of like the Ewoks worshiping C-3PO, you know, and C-3PO has to translate what's, what's going on. But when Paul and Barnabas finally realize it, they're horrified. They tear their clothing and they say, please don't sacrifice to us. We have good news to tell you. Verse 18 says they were barely able to hold the crowds back. It's growing to be this impassioned, zealous mob here. And then we get to hear Paul and Barnabas code switch. What are they going to say in this moment? How are they going to present the gospel to people who think that they're gods? What would you do in that moment? They don't start talking about the law or the Bible or the promises to Israel. They don't even mention Jesus' name. They talk about creation. Look at verse 15. We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. What is that good news, we ask? That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Aeschylus, uh, the famous Greek playwright, would have been well known. He wrote, Zeus is air, Zeus is earth, Zeus is sky, Zeus is everything. And I think it's in that context that Paul says the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. There is a God. He critiques that cultural assumption and says, yes, you believe in a God who made everything, but it's not Zeus. There is a living God, a God who is alive and who made everything. And then in verse 16, he moves to talk about idolatry. He says, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. It says, there is a way that the nations should walk, and Israel was meant to show the way, but all nations, Israel included, have wandered away from God's standard. And yet there is good news. But what is that good news? In verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I want it to shock you a little bit, maybe even scandalize you, that rather than jumping to, let me share some good news with you. Jesus paid for your sins so that you could have eternal life. Rather than doing that, Paul and Barnabas start talking about rain and harvest. Why do they do that? Because he's saying that these are good gifts given to all, and they are witnesses of God's grace. Zeus was worshiped as the weather god who provided the food on which all human beings depend, and he says, "Ah, ah, ah, look again at who gave you those blessings. Look again at who is the source of all life, who is behind it all. In the letter to the Romans, Paul finishes this argument by saying that the nations failed to understand creation correctly because they didn't see the true creator. They kept on worshiping created things rather than the creator who made them. So one scholar writes this, in view of the useless, powerless, fruitless gods that the citizens of Lystra worshiped, the mere existence of a living God who over a long period of time has demonstrated his goodness and care is good news for the Gentiles. Now, from that foundation, Paul could and likely would have circled it back around to Jesus and say, you think that's gracious? God has given you grace even more, revealed in his Son who gave you eternal life. But the story was interrupted, or his preaching was interrupted, as we're going to see in a moment. So we don't know where Paul would have gone uh, if he could have continued his witness of the gospel. And still, Let's pause and reflect on his witness in an unfamiliar context. Here we have an audience who knows nothing about the Bible, who knows nothing about the God of the Bible, who sees a miraculous healing, and their first thought is, those two men must be gods in human form. And they're actually really so close. (laughs) They're actually so close. But Paul and Barnabas know that the good news about Jesus doesn't make sense until they get the whole picture. So what do they do? They go back to the template. What is the bad news? Well, the bad news, citizens of Lystra, is that you are trying to save yourself, but you can't. You're trying to worship useless gods, but they're they're not helping you at all. The good news is that you can be saved through Jesus alone, and that redefines what we thought before. So he's communicating the gospel in a manner that is intelligible for those who are unfamiliar with God. The bad news is that there is a living God, but you've wandered away from him. You've sought your salvation in useless so-called gods. What's the good news? Even though you don't deserve his good favor, this God has already given you everything you need. Food, life itself, water, gladness, satisfaction in your hearts. You know they come from somewhere. You've just been aiming at the wrong God. The source is. The true source is the living God. And sure, Paul might have gone on to be explicit about Jesus if he had had the chance. But what I want you to see that as is, this is a gospel-shaped message. It has a gospel shape to it. God's perfection, our failures, and yet God's grace to us. That is the pattern of the gospel. It's what Christopher Watkins calls the gratuity of the universe. God did not need to make the world everything we have. Even our own existence is a gift, entirely a gift. We are receivers, and God is the giver. And so the sheer fact that the universe exists, and not only exists, but it gives you things like rain and food and joy, that is all a testimony to God's glory and love. That is a gospel-shaped message. And as we're going to see in just a moment, people believe. People believe in the name of Jesus because of it. People are converted and become disciples, uh, the followers of Jesus. And, and Paul likely, you know, later goes and he kind of confirms them and he fills out, okay, we, you got part of the picture, let me fill out the picture in a moment. And yet that is a gospel shape. God's perfection, our failures, and yet his grace... What about in our own day? People who are unfamiliar with anything about the Bible or God, people who don't believe in any God, uh, some who consider themselves spiritual, but they're not really connected with any religion, and then others who, who just don't know. And by the way, You can't, uh, in this day and age, just claim that one culture is entirely familiar and one culture is entirely unfamiliar. I went on a missions trip to Italy uh, when I was in high school, and you would think, okay, Italy, we're in Florence, there's probably a lot of Catholics here. And, And there were. There were some Catholics who knew a lot about the Bible, and yet when we would share the gospel with people, people who had gone to church their entire lives, the Catholic Church, they, they would say, I've never heard this before. Jesus died for my sins? I've never heard this before. And it's the same way in our context here. You'll have people who in, in Duluth, in the Twin Ports, uh, went to church their whole life, never went to church at all. And so it's discerning who you're talking to. But Paul and Barnabas give us an example of how to be a witness of the gospel for people who have no categories of sin, righteousness, atonement, resurrection, <laughs> The bad news in Lystra is that you are seeking things to give meaning and purpose to your life, but in the end, they all disappoint. They all lead you astray, but there is meaning and purpose, and it comes from the creator God who gives you more than you deserve is another example of this. Uh, Tim Keller modeled well how to preach the gospel in a largely unfamiliar context as he was ministering in Manhattan. Uh, In 2021, he explained why when he was talking to New Yorkers, uh, he used the language of sin when it came up in, in the Bible, but he more often used the language of idolatry. And he explained why. He said that when many people in New York hear sin, they immediately only think of sex and drugs and maybe stealing. And that was about it. The average New Yorker that he was trying to reach, however, could understand his language of lesser things, lesser gods jostling to take the place of God's love in their life. And so his job was to help them identify the idols that had a hold of their souls and tell them that they could be free from that. And then in a metropolis like New York, which, uh, where everything the world has to offer is there for you in one city, all those things could be enjoyed without worshiping them. So that was how Tim Keller, when he was planting a church in Manhattan, considered, how would I present the gospel in a way that they could understand? And that leads us to our place. What about the Twin Ports? Many people here are unfamiliar with the gospel There's kind of a generational thing of older generations are probably somewhat familiar with it because they grew up going to a a church, a lot of ex-Lutherans who aren't really following Jesus right now. Uh, More younger generations don't have that background experience. But again, it's individual. It's who you're talking to in the moment. Uh, One common narrative that people around here often believe, and I hear this often when I'm talking to non-Christians, is that the meaning of life is to be free free to do what you want and pursue what you want. How can we code switch the gospel to address that belief that the meaning of life is to be free? Well, how about this? The bad news is that you want to be free, but you're really not. You must live for something, and whatever it is will enslave you. It will become a God in your life. But the good news is that Jesus provides an identity unlike anything else, one that is based on unconditional love And not based on the ups and downs of our performance. And that is true freedom. That redefines what it means to be free. Freedom is living in a relationship that is based on love and not on works. Now there's so much more that we could say about these things. If you haven't thought about evangelism or being a witness very much, this is probably very confusing to you or somewhat discombobulating. Uh, A good next step would be for each of us to take that gospel template, bad news, good news, redefining, and then consider the people in our lives. Listen to them. Listen to what they believe. And if you are uh, not a believer, if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I hope that this is prompting some reflection even in yourself. What do I believe? What do I think the meaning of life really is? Does Jesus have anything to say About that? Can he give me a better answer than the answer that I'm accepting right now? And then we reflect on the bad news, how that narrative will ultimately lead to futility and dissatisfaction. We reach for the good news that answers our biggest questions, that satisfies our deepest longings, that gives new definitions to the things we thought we had understood, but now we can see much more clearly. So that's witnessing in a familiar and in an unfamiliar context, but the story doesn't end there. Let's look at verse 19, witnessing in a violent context. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attila, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. The tensions that followed them from Antioch and Iconium Follow them here, hundreds of miles away, and a crowd of both Jews and Greeks turn on the apostles. Paul is stoned. People throw so many stones that he's at the very least knocked unconscious. The text is unclear about whether he actually dies or not. I think it's intentionally left kind of vague, whether they just kind of knocked him out and then dragged him out and left him for dead, or whether it actually happened. I don't know how. The Jewish agitators persuaded this crowd uh, to switch so dramatically from, we're going to worship this guy, to we're going to kill him. Uh, But we do know, like I said before, that the missionary witness of Paul and Barnabas worked. Did you see that in verse 20? Who goes to collect Paul's body? The disciples. Paul was traveling with Barnabas. Disciples. Converts. People who had believed the message that they had heard come and collect. Paul, I just want you to marvel that talking about rain and harvest worked because of that gospel shape that we had talked about before. And then a second miraculous healing occurs. And then Paul gets up, he goes back into the city, which is just wild, And then he leaves the next day to continue back the way they came. They establish churches that had sprung up from their missionary work. They appoint leaders to take care of the disciples, and then they go home to report on all that had happened. For somebody getting close to death or dying, it's all very matter-of-fact, isn't it? It's kind of strange, and I, I think that's actually telling. When we consider persecution like this, being harmed or killed for our belief in Jesus, We have to actually imagine what our response would be if it happened in the twin ports. What would happen if this morning I or another preacher was stoned and then was dragged by my feet outside the city and left an ESCO? I don't know. (laughs) What would your automatic response be if it came to that? I think there are two... uh, opposite errors that Christians often make when it comes to persecution. Uh, The first error is to change the gospel so that it's less offensive. Just abandon that message that caused people to get so riled up and just kind of blend in. The opposite error is to fight with violence back, to avenge, to repay evil for evil. And it's sad to say that I often hear the second one emphasized a little bit more than the first, uh, at least in our context. Oh, if they, if the government comes for me, I'm packing. But remarkably, Paul does neither of those things. And importantly, he instructs the disciples to do neither of those things. Look again at verse twenty-one. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. They do three things. First, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Second, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And third, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Strengthening souls means returning again to the gospel, finding strength in God. What do we believe? We believe in Jesus who loves us, who died for us, who rose again to give us new life. Returning to that, finding strength in that. Second, encouraging them to continue in the faith means urging them to remain loyal to Jesus and to persist in the confidence that they have placed in God. And third, through many tribulations or hardships, we must enter the kingdom meaning that we worship the crucified God. So pain and suffering and persecution is not a surprise. The surprise is actually that I can get up here, I can preach, that you can share the gospel with people around you, and we won't be killed. That's the surprise. That, that perspective shift needs to happen. It changes everything because that's the perspective that the apostles had. Listen to Paul. He, he's later in the, the book of Second Timothy, he's telling the story of Iconium and Lystra later. And he says, you, however, Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I fought against which persecutions I hid from. No, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We looked at witness in a familiar and an unfamiliar context. What does witness look like in a violent context? It looks like neither abandoning the gospel nor fighting back, but steadfast, quiet, persistent faithfulness to God. Where do we learn this way of living? We learn it from Jesus himself. John, in Revelation 1, calls Jesus the faithful witness. He is the witness of witnesses. He shows us how to be a witness. The Jews in the familiar context were so close. They had the, the Torah, the words of God. They had the categories of Messiah, King, Priest, and Savior, and yet they didn't see Like Kyle was saying last week, they were blind. The Greeks in Lystra, in an unfamiliar context, were so close, they believed that the gods had come down in human form, and yet they didn't see. What about the violent crowds? They didn't see that violence doesn't scare Christians because our God was violated, abused, crucified. There was a God who came down in the likeness of men. He preached good news both to Jews and Gentiles. He was praised by the crowds, and then the crowds took him outside of the city and killed him. But three days later, he got right back up and went back into the city, right back to the people who had killed them. Paul says in Ephesians that Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, And peace to you who are near. Peace to the familiar, the unfamiliar, and the violent. And this leads us all the way back to verse 3, which I mentioned we would come back to. Look at Acts 14, verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Let me ask you, who is bearing witness in this verse? The Lord is. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace? Who is granting signs and wonders? Jesus is. Our witness, our mission, our declaration of the gospel is actually Jesus witnessing through us. Verse 27. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Some have said that the book of Acts shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles. Or maybe even better, because uh, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit in Acts 1 to encourage and empower us, it's the acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles. The, The point is this, if you are a Christian, you are not alone in being called to be a witness. Anytime you declare the bad news, the good news, anytime you redefine ideas based on the gospel, Jesus is in that conversation with you. We are not saving the twin ports, the Lord is. We are messengers of the Savior. We are witnesses to his power and grace and love. Yes, we should evangelize wisely. Yes, we should code switch and contextualize the gospel to our audience. But we do so out of the economy of grace, the gratuity of the universe, the amazing reality that even though we are weak and flawed, the creator and the Savior God uses us. How inefficient, (laughs) how inefficient Jesus is if he really wants his kingdom to expand, if he really wants people to hear the good news, that he would use you and me. I'm a terrible witness. And so are you. (laughs) The only good witness is the faithful witness who empowers us, who teaches us, the creator and savior God who uses us. And so our prayer is now, Lord, by your grace, do with me as you will. Witness through me wherever I go. Open doors and windows that seem impossibly shut. Let signs and wonders occur, and may they all point to you. And if we die as witnesses, we're simply doing what Jesus did, laying down our lives for the good news. That's what it means to be a witness in whatever context you're in. So as you go from this place, think about, who am I talking to? What do they believe Not so you can tear it down, but that you can show them the bad news of how their believing doesn't satisfy. And then you can say, but there's a better way. And it actually can flip your world upside down. It can give new meaning to everything you thought you knew before. Let me pray for God's help as we go on this mission to be witnesses. Father God, you have given us Jesus, the faithful witness, and you have now given us the Holy Spirit, each one of us, so that as we go from this place and we bear testimony, we do not have to do so out of our own power, out of our own strength. We can't find our identity in being a witness. We are in Christ. We are Christians, people of Jesus. And so as we go from this place, May we feel the burden for those around us who are believing bad news, to whom we want to offer good news. And yet, may we rest in the salvation, in the satisfaction, in the comfort that one day Jesus will come back, make all things new, all things true will be revealed. We will worship him and see him face to face. It's with that hope that we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.